0: Why don't you pray with me just for a moment? God, as we come this morning, we do not come lightly. We come with a sense of weight on our shoulders, in our hearts. We come with hope in in our hearts as well. I pray that you would speak this morning, God. Come and speak to us all. Let your voice ring in our ears. Let your whispers draw us back to you. May we see this morning in your word who you are, what you promise. We long for you and we declare emphatically right now we need you so much. just pray that in your name. Amen. All black males are aggressive. All blue uniforms are prejudiced. All Muslims are terrorists. These are the kind of lies that we begin to believe in our culture without even knowing it. It's not as obvious as thinking, yeah, I believe that. It is subtle. It creeps. These are things that are so part of our culture, we drink them in with our mother's milk. They become the norm, and this is what culture does. It becomes so normal that we don't recognize it as culture, it just is. We don't notice them, life churns on and we don't pay attention to the cries for change. We live as if it's all okay and it just carries on. Now there are a few things that get my attention very quickly and easily. My phone buzzing in my back pocket even when it doesn't even buzz. It's like, was that a buzz? Sport on TV, focus, laser-like focus. And yet sometimes the cries of people and the injustice that we see, we're so safe and so distanced from them that we don't even need to really pay attention or think of them. Until something comes along that gets our attention. In my case, not too long ago, a few weeks perhaps, it was an experience my son had at school where he got called racial slurs by another kid, younger than him, young. And I started wrestling, it's like, how is this true? Why is this true? How does that happen at that age? And I don't know about you, but we think these things happen only one way, or one it's one directional, because of previous stereotypes that we have formed in our minds. but, but we've all experienced it to a certain extent. And we're left with this question: God who promises? The grand narrative of creation all the way through Revelation. In creation, it is God, God walking with Adam and Eve, being with them. In Revelation, it is, it is as intimate as a marriage. That is how this promise comes, this promise that God will be with us. Then the question has to be in our hearts, where is God in this? Where is he? Why is this happening? And where can we find him? I don't know about you, I see God in sunsets. I see God in nature, in the budding of flowers. I see him in the love a mother has for her newborn baby. I see him in the covenant uh, union of, of marriage. But it's a little harder to find him in the crisis. It's just really hard to find him in times of tragedy. And like the experience I've had with my son a few weeks ago, I realize these things are not orchestrated or authored by God, but He will use them to get my attention. He will absolutely draw my attention towards Him in times of crisis. That's when this week happened. And our nation is left with very significant questions of where are you, God? And if you're angry or you're a skeptic even, and you're asking with that anger or bitterness or venom, well, where are you in all of this, God? The answer may lie somewhere in Romans 1 when it says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God the mortal God, for images, for idols, for other things that look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. C.S. Lewis says, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from Himself Because it is not there, there is no such thing. And the fundamental sin in Genesis and the fundamental sin today is that we exchange the truth of God that He will be our deep satisfaction, that in Him is the way of thriving. In Him and in obedience to Him and in submission to Him and in seeking Him can we find the life of joy and peace and hope that we have. And without Him, as soon as we uh, exchange the truth of, of His sovereignty for a lie that we can provide for ourselves, our satisfaction, the breakdown begins and is perpetuated. Amen. And so the brokenness we mourn today is evidence of humanity choosing to rely on other things other than God for the deep, satisfying reality of life on earth as He designed it. And if you ask, where is God in all of this, in a desperate attempt to seek Him and to find Him, then I think He wants to show us how we can do that. And our text within the series that we're going through, which is Revive Us Again, was Genesis 35, which is God showing up and speaking to Jacob and bringing a newness to him, an awakening to him, a reviving of his very soul and promises of blessing for Israel. And I could not help but let go of that text on Friday morning and delve deeply into the chapter right before, which was chapter 34. Here's the story. Jacob is moving on with his family, trying to find a place for them. And they get to this place, the city of Shechem, it's called. And what happens is his daughter, Dinah, Gets raped by Hamor's son called Shechem, and this incredible injustice happens in verse in chapter thirty-four. And it says, uh, "It uses very stark language. They have committed an outrage in Israel for such a thing ought not to be done." Verse seven. This was the brother's responses, Dinah's brother's responses. So Dinah gets violated. Jacob finds out about it. A little bit of time lapses. Her brother brothers find out about it. And I'm going through this quickly because it's a very long text. They devise a scheme of retaliation. But just before they do that, this guy who just raped Dinah then says, kind of, let's fix this. I I love her, I want her, let's fix this. So let's determine a bride price, I'll marry her. And he gets his father, which is the custom of the day, to come and negotiate with Jacob as a father for the life of Dinah who has just been violated and abused. Now she's, again, according to the custom, being treated like property. Her brothers are upset about this and says this ought not to be. They're right. They are absolutely right. But they devise a plan of retaliation. And they make this promise to them that if these this family, if all the males in the family get circumcised, then they can now be joined in marriage, then the bride price can be paid and Dinah can be given as a as a bride. Knowing that in a few days the pain and the infection of circumcision will come upon the men and they will be vulnerable and they will be weak. And when they are in the greatest moment of weakness, three days after, they attack and they slaughter every male in the family. Isn't that kind of sound familiar? just tragedy upon tragedy and the brokenness is just reiterated. And then Jacob has a moment of awakening. We're going to look at it now. When God shows up and God himself answers the question, where is God in this? There are two major breakdowns that happen in the story. One, the dehumanization of, of both Dinah, who was used as an object of gratification, and the family of Shechem, who then just became less human and there was justification for them to lose their lives. That's the first one, dehumanizing. Second is covenantal love is reduced to consumer love. Love, which is covenantal, which is the way of God, it concerns itself ultimately with the other. The question that covenantal love asks is this, what do they need? How do I care for them? Gets reduced to consumer love, which is, I want this as my satisfaction, let me procure it. My concern is for my own satisfaction, and therefore I ask this question, what do I want and how can I get it? Now, Hamor, the father of the son who committed this crime, used cultural normative practices to overlook and even dismiss the sin. The lies that culture believes that says this makes it okay. He tried to use that again. The superficiality of these normative, oppressive cultural practices. This is not a new concept. But the superficiality of it leaves us with the idea that consumer love does not satisfy the forgiveness needed to pay the cost for very despicable acts. And so the two escalating evils that we see at play in this narrative is this. One, making your camp in resentment stemming from systemic evil in our culture. It is really easy for my heart to go and make my camp in resentment because of how I have been treated. 34, chapter 34, the verse 31, right at the end, her brothers say this, but they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And in this, they're making their camp in resentment and they're deciding to use that as the basis for their retaliation, the justification for the retaliation. The second escalating evil is this, making your camp in ignorance and apathy, denying the pain of the humanity. Here's what Jacob did. I'm going to read it to you because it is actually outrageous. So Jacob heard that Shechem, verse 5, had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with the cattle in the field This phrase, so Jacob held his peace. Translated in the original language, it means two things. Acting deaf and acting dumb, as in I cannot speak. In the light of Huge tragedy and injustice. Jacob's response was to not do anything. The apathy towards an injustice will perpetuate the cycle of violence. And Jacob, as the head of the clan, the authority, the one who was supposed to set the example here, made one grave error. He did not act and he let those with ulterior agendas to inflict harm and perpetuate violence set the tone. Because he did not speak up and he did not hear the cries of injustice that came. Two camps resentment and injustice Jacob held his peace both of these camps perpetuate escalating injustice There are four categories of people in the story and I'm going to go through them quickly one those who offend two those who consent three those who retaliate and then four those who seek God and his justice, who truly ask the question, where is God in this? Those who offend, we often, the problem with this is, we often point towards someone and say, they are the offender, instead of first looking inwards. And Jesus raises the standards as we look to the gospel, which is the only unifying point that we can work around. Jesus speaks and lives this when he says, if you have even harbored hate in your heart towards someone, you are committing murder. And we point to a shooter on a roof who shoots five cops. And we point to those who are unjust and who act upon these cultural lies that have become part of their very nature as it is in ours I wonder if I'm very honest what I would do if I had the gun in my hand and so I'm faced with the reality that Jesus points us to which is no 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 it's not the shooter on the roof it's my heart What in me holds the prejudice? What in me holds the anger? What in me holds the resentment? What in me holds the retaliation? Where is it that I believe the lies? And Jesus speaks the truth that we are all murderers. He does not just speak this. He then takes our murder upon him, our sins, our brokenness upon the cross sufficiently, Takes that upon and he says, But I will carry that burden so that there is a possibility, a hope of reconciliation that you may live free. It is remarkable. The second is, Oh, our response to that is to repent. The second is those who consent. Jacob held his peace. And therefore, think of your own responses to these things one, to repent, two, to keep quiet to not do anything. That is absolutely not what we are called to. And again, our response to that is to repent for where we have not spoken up, for where we have acted deaf and dumb. Thirdly, for those who retaliate, who respond with anger and with the bitterness that they hold. Here's an interesting text. In Genesis 49, this is the father's blessing upon his sons. Simeon and Levi were the two sons who enacted the mass murder after their sister's rape. Simeon and Levi, it says in the text. In Genesis 49, Jacob speaks over his sons, and this is what he says over Simeon and Levi. This is at the end of his life when he's about to die. He says... Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce and their wrath. For it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. When we look with hostility upon the other, we perpetuate what, is what the scriptures call scattering, not unifying. And this is where it's kind of treated to the max. When we look with hostility and anger and hate, upon even those who pulled the triggers we perpetuate scattered divisive society that's a hard word to hear the result is division and strife when we when we respond from anger and hate. And our call is to repent. And then lastly, those who seek God and seek His justice. Here's what happens. A false peace, unless we seek God and seek His justice can reign. A peace that says, Let's just buy with our cultural lives the peace. For the moment and never deals with the deep-rooted disparity in our hearts. And so Genesis 35 verse 1, this is where God shows up. Remember our question, where are you in this God? He shows up and he shows up in an unexpected way. Genesis five uh, thirty-five, verse 1, God says to Jacob, arise And go to Bethel. Now Bethel is a very interesting place. It holds deep significance for Jacob. Because this is a place where God spoke to him first when he was in trouble. When he uh, violated his own brother and stole his brother's inheritance. Stole his birthright. He deceived. He and God met him in Bethel and spoke to him. And restored to him. So God says this, go back to Bethel. That is a significant statement. It's not just, oh, go to Bethel, I'm going to meet you there. It says something to Jacob. It says, remember how you were forgiven? Remember how I came to your aid back in the day? I'm going to remind you of that because that's what you're going to need right now. And then he says this to him. So Jacob Uh, uh, Arise, go to Bethel and settle there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves. Change your clothes. Then come, let us go to Bethel, that I might make an altar there to the God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. And all of a sudden, Jacob remembers, God reminds him of who he is. So they gave to Jacob all their foreign gods that they had, the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak that was near Shechem. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities. No one pursued them. Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And then he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, El being the name for God, sovereign God, all-powerful God, Bethel, because it was there that God had revealed himself to him And uh, when he fled from his brother. Verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again, when he came from Paddan Aram, and he blessed him, and God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he was called Israel, and it was, in essence, the birth of the display people of God, the nation God would use as his display within a world that is just riddled with tragedy and hate and despair. God says, from this moment on, from this experience, you will be the representative of me on earth, you and your family to come. And his revelation, he says, God revealed himself. And how God reveals himself in these texts are through the names that he has been called. And in verse 11, it says, God said to him this, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. That word, God Almighty, is El Shaddai. It's one of the names used for God. El, the God Almighty, and Shaddai, the God, the Sufficient One. Isn't it fascinating that in this time of tragedy and crisis and reciprocal hate, God reveals Himself because that's His promise. Where is God in this? This is where He is at. And who is He? He is El Shaddai, God who is Almighty and All Sufficient. And we still look for our own sufficiencies. We still look for ways to satisfy these things. And we look to a president. And we look to a police force. And we look to politics. And we look to many different things. And ultimately God says, I am the only one that can all sufficiently satisfy the pain that you're feeling the need that you have to be seen as a human being not as someone whose life can be taken lightly I am the all sufficient one and together with that goes Jacob's action which cannot be denied which is let's lay down everything we trust in and he's his call to, to lay down all the idols that we think will be sufficient for us all the things that we think will satisfy us Lay that down and find God first. And then in response to finding God, we live a new narrative. We live a whole new way, displaying to the world what could be. Put away your idols is the cry of Jacob as he meets with God. God hears and God shows up. God appeared as El Shaddai to the patriarchs seven times in the Old Testament, to Abram, to Isaac, to Jacob, and the context for every single one of these instances where he revealed himself as El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one, was this, it was God's fulfillment of the promised plan that he had for humanity, which in itself should tell us something about who God is. He is the all-powerful one and the all-sufficient one who can carry out his promised plan. What is his promised plan? A life on earth of flourishing for all of his creation. And God reveals himself as that, El Shaddai. And so we turn from the lies that we believe, that all these things can satisfy us. We turn from our competing loyalties Because we are loyal in this narrative that our nation faces to something. We're loyal either to the cops, the policemen who lay down their lives. Or we are loyal to those who are hardly even seen as human and their lives are taken so cheaply. And we find loyalties in all the conversation. Just look at the Twitter feed. It is so sad to read some of these polarizing thoughts. We we turn from our competing loyalties. We renounce all forms of wickedness, especially those involving idolatry, and quit and quickly lay them down before the love of God is forced to drive us to even greater calamities that we are currently facing in our society. God gets our attention somehow, and he uses these things And the only unifier is the gospel. And at Bethel, two things happen. One, God speaks. And two, God reveals himself. And I feel like God is inviting us all to a place of Bethel, a place where we can hear the voice of God and a place where we can meet with him. And Jesus displayed that no greater love has this than laying down your life for a friend, going from consumer love to covenantal love. Let's love again as Jesus loved And he invites us to partake in this. Remember what C.S. Lewis said, there cannot be happiness and peace apart from God himself because it is not there. And so we repent. And that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to spend a moment in repentance as we have done this week already. But we are each individually going to repent And as we go from here, this is something that we are committed as a church to work on. There are conversations being crafted, spaces in which we can have this conversation. And everybody's going to be welcomed into the conversation where we can cultivate a holy discontent with the status quo. That's the second thing that we do. And throughout all of this, we're going to seek God, El Shaddai, who is the sufficient one. So I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to mention a few things. And as I mention them, would you spend time by yourself just processing this and repenting of this? I cannot repent for you. We're going to have corporate repentance as we have already. We're going to have all these things that we do together. But it doesn't start there. It starts in our hearts. It starts in a place where we say, yes, I am part of the problem. Whether I consent to it, whether I don't speak up Because of it, whether I harbor hate and frustration in my heart, I am part of the problem. So God, we come. We come cautiously because who can answer these complex questions that we have experienced? Who can truly understand? These are hard, hard things. So help us now as we process the state of our own hearts the state of self-righteousness where we think we have it together and others don't, where we think we have all the answers and we try to impose those on others instead of hearing the pain and the cries of those who are in the midst of the tragedy. Forgive us, God. As you said, I'm going to mention these few things line by line. I'll pause between each of them and then as we do this, would you consider Repenting from any of this is if it is harbored in your heart as in mine. The anger that comes up in us, anger that does not lead to righteousness and justice but leads to retaliation, it leads to animosity towards the other person, towards the other party. It polarizes. It does not unify. If there is anger in our hearts this morning, God, if there is animosity towards the other in our hearts this morning, God, here is a moment where you hear your people's repentance. we go through this, do not just think towards that person in Minnesota, towards that person in Dallas. Think towards your friend, your colleague, your boss, your spouse. Think towards your family relationships that are in disrepair, where we polarize, where we treat them as the other, as the ones who need to understand. The next is apathy, where we have not acted, where we have acted deaf or dumb. We have not listened and we have not spoken. We have just sat back. Consider the the places we can repent even now. Consider where fear has overcome hope. Where worry and anxiety trumps the hope that we have in the all-sufficiency of God. We face very real dangers. Some face the dangers of what would happen to my family if they got stopped in a car by a police officer, and we fear those realities and we live and we adjust our lives around the fear, very legitimate fear. Some of us fear the retaliation, fear the cycle of violence that could happen. In that fear, hear the all-sufficiency of God and lay down the fears at his feet for he understands, he knows and the hope that we have in him is far greater. God, hear our repentance right now from the fear that comes from putting other things, putting our trust in other things above you And then lastly, Father, we ask that which you gave to Jacob. We ask that you would speak to us and that you would be with us. This is your promise from the beginning. And as in our hearts, this deep question resounds, where is God in all of this? I pray that every single one of us will find you, will hear your voice speaking to us, and from that place of intimate finding, we can lead into our culture and we can become a display nation for others to see who our God is. We need you, God, in these moments. We need you to come. There is none like you that can satisfy it is you alone. It is you alone, God. I'm going to read these two verses that became the, the very display of who God's people was supposed to be. And this is still who we are as his display people. This is from Deuteronomy 4. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it As the Lord, our God, is to us whenever we call upon him. This is the defining nature of the people of God, a God who is near to us when we call on him. Secondly, and what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law I set before you today? Our desire for God's nearness and our desire for God's justice is in His presence with us. And we, as the people of God, have the opportunity to display that to a world who needs it.